the scientific community has come to accept the role of catastrophic events in Earth history. Since 1980, between now, this has now become an accepted paradigm for understanding Earth history. Where we're at now, and the thing that I am trying to promote, is this realization that we have to look at these nonlinear catastrophic events if we want to understand human history. All right, today I've got a very special guest on the show. It's actually the first guest I've had on the Matt Lohmeyer show uh, in the first three episodes. It was important for me to uh, fly solo, as it were, and lay out some background uh, of my own recent involvement in the realm of politics and uh, military-centric universe and talk about my own career in the Space Force. Uh, but as I've mentioned in those earlier episodes, I'm very interested in getting guests on the show who I've admired, who I've learned a great deal from, and uh, our guest today, Randall Carlson, is one such guest. And so welcome to the show today, Randall. Glad to have you. Well, I'm glad to be here, Matt. Thanks for having me. I feel privileged to be here. Randall, you've got a unique breadth of information at your disposal in that cranium of yours. And um, I've uh, taken an interest in you for the past several of years, several years, and I'm guessing that uh, probably most people that in the past several weeks have that have subscribed to this show or podcast aren't necessarily familiar with the work that you've done. And so I'd like to take just two minutes to open and share kind of a personal story about how I came across your work and why it was appealing to me. And uh, then I'll turn it over to you to talk about who you are and uh, the work that you're currently involved in, and we'll go from there. Now, you're aware and my listeners aware that I was in the Air Force, flew jets for the Air Force, but then found myself uh, in the new Space Force. And uh, one of the difficult challenges that our Space Force professionals have when trying to wrap their minds around their mission field and their domain, which is the space domain, is actually taking their bearings on the cosmos and, and trying to view the heavens properly. It's unnatural for us. We, we tend to not pay attention to the stars. We tend to not pay attention to uh, both natural or man-made or, uh, objects that are in orbit around the Earth. And it's really difficult for us to grasp uh, the motions of the Earth alone, let alone how it is that you put things in orbit or how things are naturally in orbit. And so one of the first or basic things that we teach our space professionals when they go off to their basic space training is about basic orbits and about orbital mechanics, and we try and ingrain that in their mind, and we have to show them these 3D representations of, of the heavens so that they can extract themselves from their geocentric or air domain-centric, in the Air Force's case, worldview, and start to think about things maybe from a space perspective. Well, I found uh, a series of 12 videos. Uh, I don't know that they were... They weren't originally produced as 12 videos, but it's titled now on YouTube, The Great Year... And um, you had done it probably a decade ago, I'm guessing. Uh, so you didn't have quite as much white or gray in your beard or in your hair back then. But you, you held a globe in your hand at the beginning of a class in a small classroom. And you described the motions of the Earth. You started with the diurnal and the, the rotation of the Earth about its own axis. And then you went on to the annual rotation and cycle of the Earth. And that there are these repeatable predictable patterns that these motions bring about. But then you went into another realm altogether, 
that I'd never considered as an adult member of the Space Force. You talked about uh, a rotation or a, a wobble of the Earth uh, on its axis that uh, induces what we call a processional cycle and causes the precession of the equinoxes and the rising of the sun in the various houses of the zodiac over a course of roughly 26,000 years. And I'll tell you, that information really piqued my interest because of all of the learning I'd try to do, uh, that in and of itself really got me drawn into your work. Uh, then I went on Joe Rogan's podcast and saw the many episodes you've done there. Uh, you're probably one of the most well-visited guests on Joe Rogan's podcast. <laughs> it's my guess. Um, how many times have you shown up there? I've been on there six times now. Six times. Well, that's yeah. probably a title few can claim. And I'll probably do a seventh here before the summer's over. I hope so. Yeah. Well, so all of that said, um, I was really interested then in some of the work you had done in cataloging near-Earth asteroids and near-Earth objects. And uh, there's a tremendous threat there that our Space Force community in particular was, um, I felt like, uh, lacking an understanding of. And we have a brand new service focused on a whole uh, range of mission sets and we needed to zero in some of our focus, perhaps on planetary defense, but that wasn't necessarily a part of the focus. And unfortunately, our, our focus has gone far away from that yet further still for political reasons. But all of that got me very interested in you. So we're going to get to some of that stuff, I hope, uh, in, in the next couple of episodes. Uh, what I'm hoping to do now is rewind a little bit and just turn the floor over to you. And who's Randall Carlson? What would you have a world who's not familiar with you or your work know about you? Uh, what have you spent your life doing for a living? And, and what have you spent your, your life trying to learn and understand? Well, first of all, I'm always a little bit awkward and uncomfortable talking about myself because, you know, my philosophical Good. perspective is the importance is the message so much more than the messenger. But, you know, I realize that, yeah, I think that my my background and my upbringing obviously was conducive to um, being interested in all of these things. Uh, I, you know, I, <clears throat> to me, I, I think it's just bizarre that I'm, that people would find me unusual because I'm obsessively curious about this world we live in. And I always have been, I just, to me, that's, that should be the natural, that should be the norm. Right. But to me, most people are walking around asleep or half asleep and not paying attention to what's going on. But you know, from an early age, I just had this abiding interest in, in how things worked. And I, I would attribute a huge part of my interest in these things to um, basically growing up in rural Minnesota and living in an area that was pretty much right on the margin of the great ice sheet. There was a ice sheet over, uh, you know, pretty much all of Canada was buried under ice back down to around 13 to 20,000 years ago. And it reached from the Atlantic Ocean to the Pacific and from the northern United States up to the Arctic Circle. And where I lived was an area that was um, affected by the uh, superior lobe, named after Lake Superior, the superior lobe of the, of the Laurentide Ice Sheet. And right there where we grew up, <clears throat> it was an area where the glaciers would wax and wane with a fair degree of regularity. So they completely sculpted this landscape and it was a very pastoral landscape, very rolling, many, many lakes. I mean, you already, everybody knows Minnesota's well known for its lakes. You know, 10,000 land of 10,000 lakes is actually closer to 15,000 lakes. But 
we had land, we had property right on the shores of one of these, these glacial leftover glacial meltwater ponds. And, um, you know, there was, I don't know really how to explain it, but there was always something to me compelling about the landscape. I would sometimes just for the sake of it, I used to climb up on the roof. Of, we had several, my house, my father was a house builder and we lived in a succession of houses that he built. But I would oftentimes climb up on the roof and just sit up there and gaze out at the landscape and have this kind of feeling that there was something like a story there that, you know, I would look at the lay of the hills and, and the, the, you know, the valleys and just the distribution of the topography. And it always seemed to me on some level that there was some kind of a story there. Even as a little kid, like nine and 10 years old, I would start getting fascinated by the landscapes. And, you know, you would see like farmers that were our neighbors had, um, you know, they would have a field that was dedicated to crops. You know, they would rotate one year. It might be alfalfa one year. It might be corn and they would graze cattle there. But I would notice that at, on the um, on the on the edges of the fields, on the uh, uh, they would there would be big piles of boulders, you know, and they would mm-hmm, be linear. Right. And sometimes these boulders would be four or five feet in diameter, sometimes smaller, but there would be these linear rows of uh, boulders, usually stacked up against section boundaries, because oftentimes properties were divided according to the to the section. So I would look at that. I would puzzle over that. Um, you know, not far from where we lived there, um, there was a huge erratic boulder sitting right next to the lake. So I have memories of being six and seven years old, you know, just playing up on top of that big boulder. Um, I would usually be up there with a stick or something, and I would be battling off dinosaurs. Usually I was battling dinosaurs when I was out in the woods, you know, or playing. It was pretty. So it wasn't because of something you were reading or studying per se. This is early on and you're naturally even, very curious. Even before about I learned how to really yeah. to read. So when I really felt like I got pretty good at reading, I guess I was about eight years old. And then I just, I can remember getting a, uh, maybe it was my eighth birthday, my ninth birthday. I got a, a subscription to, was called all about books and every month i'd get a new book and it would be all about electricity all about the weather all about reptiles all about any number of scientific subjects so i would just you know wait every month you know when my new book would come and i would dive into it so i became an obsessive reader like between eight and nine just obsessive i that's your problem yeah i read (laughs) every constantly i read um so it was kind of a combination of things. And then, uh, you know, once I hit adolescence, my priorities in life changed from looking at landscapes to looking at, uh, well, mostly le- ladies, girls mm-hmm. at that point um, in my life. Um, but I would say I came around maybe around 18. I remember I was, uh, I, I loved going to rock concerts and mm-hmm. uh I think I've told this story before, but I'll, I'll tell it again. I've it heard like, it publicly, but yeah, it's worth, um, it's worth yeah, sharing. This, I think this one, I'll actually, I think I can pull up a topographic yeah. to kind of underscore how, yeah, do. how it was, but you know, there was a number of things. I mean, I'll preface that by saying, you know, we used to take outings and one of the outings we used to go to was a place called, uh, St. Croix Falls. It was on the, uh, the, uh, St. Croix river that forms the border between Minnesota and Wisconsin, and, and there's a, a constriction within the river valley 
Uh, it's maybe 60, 70 miles northeast of the Twin Cities. <clears throat> and we used to go there and hang out when we were kids and hike and play and stuff. And one of the things was that there was an outcropping of basalt, maybe 60 or 70 feet above the, the modern river. And in this flat surface, there was a whole succession of these gigantic potholes, you know, drilled into the rock. And, you know, we'd go there every couple of years. We'd go there and we'd picnic or hike or whatever. And I would sometimes with my parents, sometimes with my grandparents, see these big potholes drilled into the into the rock was like what's this well how do these big round holes some of them 20 feet in diameter and 80 feet deep how do they get here you know and, and you know at the time you're a kid you just wonder about that and then you you move on to other things you know but some of these kinds of events sort of stuck in the back of my mind and and one of them was this um going to this uh rock concert at uh at uh, eden in Eden Prairie, Minnesota, there was Flying Cloud Airport. And at Flying Cloud Airport is on a bluff. It's about a 200-foot high bluff, pretty flat, but it overlooks the Minnesota River Valley. And right at that point, and, and let's go ahead and see if we can't do a share screen. And I'll zoom in on that area, and we'll see if I can't actually so so and, give us the general area again that we're looking okay, at here i will zoom out and you can see the twin cities minneapolis st paul and i'm going to zoom in on this area called eden prairie and you can see the modern here's the minnesota river and here's these couple of hundred foot high bluffs i'm talking about and if we go here you can see very clearly something which is called, I'm going to introduce you to a term you may have recalled this from other podcasts I've done called an underfit street, underfit river. Okay, an underfit river is where you have a channel that's much larger than the river that's flowing in. Now here you can see very clearly you've got the modern Minnesota River and if you zoom in, of course the topographical differentiation here is too uh, small to be resolved at this at this screen uh, level, but you can see that there are large bluffs. Now, the idea here is that in the old models of, of you know global change and its effect in creating landscapes, is that everything happens very very slowly. And in the old models, the Minnesota River would have created this large channel over many, many thousands or hundreds of thousands of years. And, um, but that's not the case. This is basically what's happening here is that the modern river is flowing in an ancient channel that was created by a gigantic river. How, how ancient are you thinking? I mean, is there any way that we, do we know oh, yes. that? Yes, there is. We can date, um, and actually, this was a draining of what's called Glacial Lake Agassiz. And you can follow the pathway of this, this drainage uh, conduit all the way up here. These, these lakes, like you see here, uh, let's see, that is Lac, uh, Lac Qui Parlay State Park, Marsh Lake. You keep going up here, and you've got Big Stone Lake. Now, Big Stone Lake, that's a clue right there. 
It's called Big Stone Lake because there are some very large stones there. Um, and most of them show evidence of having been water transported because they're relatively round. But if we come up right up into here, right here by Lake Travers, this was the southernmost arm of this gigantic proglacial impoundment of meltwater called Glacial Lake Agassiz. And right here, this was a discharge, the southernmost discharge point of Glacial Lake Agassiz. And so that water flowed down. It cut this canyon or this channel that the modern Minnesota River is flowing in. And again, we can zoom in and you can see the, the ancient channel with the bluffs on both sides. And then you can see the modern Minnesota River, which is minuscule compared to the channel that is flowing in. But it's natural that channels like this would capture the modern rivers. That once, you know, if you've got 200 foot, 100 to 200 foot bluffs on either side, once the modern river is captured in there, it's it's stuck there, right? It's not going to flow out of that ancient channel. What is the term again that you used for this smaller river within a larger river basin? An underfit river. An underfit river. And how is that idea or that term related to scale invariance that, that uh, some people may have heard you talk about? Yes. Okay. So uh, because of, well, this is, yeah. So let's zoom back in. And basically the idea is if you could actually get a close-up view of the modern river, you'll see that there's a set of bank embankments on both sides. And then there's a modern floodplain. Now, in the most extreme modern floods, the water will come up out of this channel that the modern Minnesota River has cut into the, the, the sedimentary uh, material that forms the floor of this channel. And it will have a set of banks that are, in effect, sort of miniature duplicates of the much larger channel. So you'll have a channel within a channel. In fact, there are places, I can show you examples of where you would have a channel within a channel within a channel, right? And uh, that is kind of an example uh, of scale invariance. Is it your view that it's just a geological phenomenon, the scale invariance, or does it appear in other, in all fields of the uh, natural sciences, yes, from the microcosm to the macrocosm, or does it not stretch that far? I think it does. I think it does. Now, I focus primarily on scale invariance in geology, because, you know, one of the things that I noticed early on that just made perfect intuitive sense for me, if I'm looking at reading a geological paper or a geological text, you will have, let's say it's, you've got an outcrop, right? When you're looking at this outcrop, and oftentimes it's difficult to tell what's the scale. You look, we're looking at something here that's a foot tall, 10 feet tall, or 100 feet tall. So you usually will see in a geologically a geological photograph, something to provide scale. If it's a smaller, um, you know, more constricted viewpoint, you might have uh, what's typically put in the picture is a rock hammer, right? Or it could be anything. It could be a hat, you know. Uh, get a little bit larger, usually you'll have a person standing there because then that gives you the sense of scale because so many of these geological features are scale invariant. It's very difficult to tell um, what you're looking at without some reference, something something to give you the, the, the size right. of what you're looking at. But I've also found, in, and this goes kind of will take us off on a tangent somewhat, the, that in a lot of ancient architecture and art, the same phenomenon of scale invariance. 
and that was a deliberately uh, a stratagem that was deliberately uh, employed to try to achieve harmony by having establishing this consonance between the whole of a composition. And it could be a painting we're talking about. It could be a temple. It could be a cathedral or whatever it might be that there's this consonance, this I'll use the term resonance between the whole and the part. And that is based on scale and variance. And we can do um, a future podcast where I can show you examples of that. Um, And the idea is, you know, we might have a rectangle that has specific proportions that right. that defines the uh, perimeter of a building. And then within that building, you'll find um, that it's been segregated into rooms or chambers or hallways or different parts. And the, the, the proportions that have defined the whole will define the parts as well. Yeah, I've, I've participated in some presentations in the past that you've given in person uh, where you talk about some of this. I think it's fascinating, and I think some of that material where you cover those ideas, I'm guessing, shows up in the Cosmographia podcast as well that you do. Yeah, I've, I've definitely gotten into that, although not to the extent that I'm going to. I mean, I have a lot more yeah. material on that that I haven't really haven't gotten into yet. So, so how does so we're talking about this because you you start telling a story about what the early life influences were that get you interested. I mean, you're you're naturally curious. You say, how does that ultimately and and at the risk of cutting a thought short, I don't want to do that. So, if there's more to share about this, then uh, then we can stay here for a minute. But I I wonder how that then translates into you building a catalog of near Earth asteroids and near Earth objects <laughs> and studying. Um, I mean, anything from ancient uh, wisdom texts to philosophy to you name it. I mean, there's this breadth. I've I've sometimes described you to others as a kind of Renaissance man of sorts or a modern-day Aristotle. Um, And I know you're uncomfortable with the idea of you being in the picture vice the message that you're trying to communicate and and the education that you're trying to provide. But help us, like, talk us through the like what comes next? You're taking an interest in all of this, and you now know a great deal more about it than you did then. But what is the the evolution and blossoming into like a much more fulsome exploration of you know all things knowledge, all things uh, ancient culture and civilization and architecture? And well, I'll circle back to to this story here. Where I was standing, uh, you know, it was 1969. I'm um, one year. I'm, I'm not one year. I'm fresh out of high school. Um, and it was summer, and I can remember a beautiful day, beautiful, probably late spring day or early summer day in Minnesota, and I went out to see a rock concert that was being held out here. And I'm guessing it was right in here. The airport has expanded since 1969, obviously, and there's all this, you can see all of this area that's been built up. Back then, this this was all just pristine uh, land. It was probably farmers' fields. And what I remember was just wanting to get away from the crowd for a while. And I walked over to the bluff, and I was standing right, pretty much on this area right here, looking down at the modern Minnesota River. And that's when I kind of had this sense that, because on the other side, you see, three miles away, if I zoom down here, zoom out, look what you see. You see the opposite side mm. of the channel. Right. And and I could see in the distance that there was a set of bluffs kind of matching the set of bluffs I was on. And and that was like this clue and it got planted in my brain. I just almost didn't consciously 
think about it at the time, but I remember looking at the small Minnesota River flowing in its channel with its floodplain, and then I saw the 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 you know the bluffs that I was standing on, and then several miles across another set of bluffs, and it just I had this impression that wow was this like a was there a big river flowing through here at one time, and then I kind of I forgot about it, and um, it was years later, over a decade later, that I came back to it because I was actually giving a, a lecture, and this was in the 1980s, Now I was giving a lecture, uh, and I was talking about architecture and the use of scale invariance in architecture, all right? So this was the lecture, and I had slides of buildings and showing how these designers would partition up the space in order to get this proportionality constant, and I made the reference to this right here, and I said, you know, that there was a really big channel that you know, I pretty much believe by this time I'd come to believe that, you know, that it was in fact a very big river that made it. And there was a fella in the group there that had had a degree. He wasn't a practicing geologist, but he had a degree in geology and he was very derisive and said, no, 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 no. That was not a big, that was just, that was created over, you know, millions of years. That was, the, and I said, right. well, no, I remember his name was John. I said, John, I think you're wrong and I'm right. <laughs> but we had a kind of an argument, and uh -huh. I said, all right, well, I'm going to get down here. So I, I actually, that motivated me, and I went and I enrolled, and I majored in geology. Okay. And because, well, <clears throat> so the upshot of that was that I came away convinced, not just convinced, but knowing that I was right and my mm -hmm. friend John was wrong. And, you know, I've seen the studies now done by uh, – you know, highly credentialed paleohydrologists that have looked at this flow through here and have cataloged all of the different kinds of evidence that would lead one to conclude that, yes, this was, in fact, a very large river uh, that was uh, fed by uh, glacial meltwater, copious amounts of glacial meltwater. They even gave the river a name called Glacial River Warren, and the estimated peak discharge was roughly 4,000 times greater than that of the modern Minnesota River. So I was entirely vindicated in that. And and how many times greater than, than the modern? 4,000 times greater. 4,000 times greater. Right. So in other words, if we look at this channel here, it was cut by a water flow. Let's get down to where the, mm -hmm. the channel is very discreet. It was cut by a water flow 4,000 times the magnitude yeah. of the modern Minnesota River. What will you do if the grid goes down? How will you survive without food, water, and heat? Introducing One Sunrise, the first of its kind in massive on-demand power, instantly available at any residential, commercial, or remote location. Power your home, your office, your EV, your RV, your farm, your cabin, your bug-out bunker, your glamping weekend with the family, or all of them. Bring instant power to any situation, anywhere. Non-toxic, cobalt and lead-free, as well as fire-resistant, One Sunrise mobile power stations are made to run in over 100-degree temps or at negative 20. For when the grid goes down, there's One Sunrise. Visit onesunrise.com to learn how you can prepare today for no power tomorrow. And now that's startling, but I, I get the sense I'm trying to think about, you know, my viewer or listener to this, this show who's never per perhaps before studied this or considered this and one of the questions they might ask is, why does that matter? 
Why does it matter that you were right and John was wrong with regard to these things, these things specifically? And there, there has to be some importance to this. And then you give, you know, decades go by and you're still studying this, very interested in it. And uh, frankly, many people take interest in this. And I don't want to lead your answer at all, but I, I personally can't help but wonder if your uh, mention of uniformitarianism versus catastrophism or gradualism versus catastrophism is a part of that for people. And what's your sense about why this is intriguing to people, this information, as if it's new, exciting, um, a new revelation of sorts, and and you know, it doesn't even seem like it necessarily should be. Uh, and yet here, here you are able to present information about it that, that you know, people aren't necessarily going and learning about elsewhere. So why does it matter? Well, let, let me put it this way. Um, it matters because we live on this planet and we need to understand the natural forces that work on this planet. And, you know, I think geology was incredibly uh, facilitated by the uniformitarian methodology, which basically says that we use modern processes, uh, we extrapolate from modern processes to try to understand ancient processes that created the forms and the landscapes and the features that we can see, but the forces which created those are no longer operational. So if we look at a large channel like the one I just showed you, the forces that created the, um, you know, the, the, the modern Minnesota River Valley, which is between a mile and three miles, up, even in places up to five miles wide, the forces, the paleohydrological forces that created that are no longer operational, right? But it tells us that there is something that, that affects this planet that's on a, uh, a scale that's outside of our modern experience, you see. And, and you see, for a century, geological thinking, earth, thinking about Earth history, was straightjacketed by the uniformitarian model, which... On the one hand, it's extremely potent for understanding, yes, because we right. do look at modern processes, and, and that really does help us to understand the ancient processes, right? The problem is it's, it's became so entrenched dogma that anything outside of the uniformitarian model was considered pseudoscience and fringe, and uh, therefore was rejected. And this goes back, I think, to the early days of geology when you had this um, you know, this controversial dichotomy between the religious uh, interpretation of Earth history and the uh, the nascent scientific interpretation of Earth history. Now, you had geologists, interestingly, and this would be a, a very interesting topic for, a, for a, a conversation we could have in the future. Yeah. One of, most of the original founders of geology, you know, William Buckland, uh, Georges Cuvier, um, Adam Sedgwick, Roderick Murchison, we could go through the list of those. They all were almost to a man catastrophists. Mm -hmm. They believed that the features and the things that they were seeing in the landscape could only be explained by means of catastrophic outsized type events. Well, what happened when you get sort of to the mid 19th century is you had um, Playfair, Lyle, and Hutton were the three who essentially codified the uniformitarian interpretation of earth history and again like i said it was very potent very powerful for understanding sedimentary processes understanding erosional and depositional processes all of these things but it came became codified as dogma by the time you get to the establishment of geology geology as an academic discipline in the late 19th century 
they wanted to basically come up with this textbook framework that could be codified and taught as dogma, right? And and because of this controversy between, let's say, the biblical literalists who said, well, all of the features that we're looking at, you know, were created by Noah's flood or whatever, or created within seven days, that controversy and that battle between the the fundamentalist religious worldview and the scientific worldview went on for several centuries. And even in the 19th century, you know, the 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 um the pogroms and the heresies, the suppression of heresies were still fresh in people's minds. So it was like, okay, we're gonna we're gonna put the study of earth history onto a scientific footing and we're gonna do away with things like Noah's flood. Right. So it's right. like we're liberated from it. We don't have to think of everything that we're seeing as being the consequence of Noah's flood. Well, what they did was they went to they went too far. They went to the other extreme. And so now everything really became millions of years, millions of years, one grain of sand, one drop of water at a time. And if you've got enough time, see, one of the things that was that allowed for that change in perspective was the fact that we shifted from a, a, a model of Earth history that only allowed for, say, six or seven thousand years to now we've right. got millions of years. So. It's like what they were able to do is to say that if you're thinking that all of the things that we see in the land around us were created, you know, in a geological eye blink, you know, 6,000 years ago, that necessarily implies catastrophic rates of change. And and now we shift to millions of years. We don't need catastrophes anymore because we've got we can now bring in the, the time element to say that it takes millions of years, we can create Grand Canyon in millions of years. We don't need Noah's flood to create Grand Canyon, for example. You know, one of the things I've come to appreciate about this information that you share ad infinitum uh, on, on podcasts and things is that I've come to believe that my own religious worldview, which I understand everyone has their own unique religious worldview, and they've got different flavors of uh, Christianity from anything from everything is entirely symbolic that they're reading in the pages of the Bible to everything is terribly literal and how dare you say otherwise and everything in between. But I've come to believe that much of the understanding that we've been able to gain in the sciences and various fields of inquiry, like the, our, your geological studies, for example, or our understanding of the cosmos isn't necessarily at odds with the religious texts. It's just a matter of understanding both both fields of inquiry, the both the religious on the one hand and the scientific on the other. Is that your, what's your view on that? My view is entirely um, in in line with that, that, that I look at the religious texts as being sources of profound information. Um, again, talking about future podcasts, I'm not prepared to do it today, but it'd be fun to <laughs> fun, maybe interesting to yeah. go through the Noachite accounts of the great flood. Compare those, for example, to some of the other accounts, the Greek account of Deucalion and the Greek, the Great Flood. There, the Sumerian account of Utnapishtim and the story of Gilgamesh. And look at the the parallels there, but also to see that there's an underlying strata of scientific plausibility when you take you kind of look at it through this this altered lens of catastrophism, and you realize that ancient scripture ancient mythology, legends, and so on are replete with catastrophism. So in a way, we've come full circle. See, our ancestors fully believed in a catastrophic world. And 
and believed in a catastrophic world right up until the advent of, of modern geological theory. So what happened is that you had geological uniformitarianism or gradualism entrenched through most of the 20th century. And of course, there were major exceptions to that. One of those, the most prominent in my mind, was the work of J. Harlan Bretz, who, who uh, studied the great Missoula floods, or mm -hmm. Spokane floods, as he called them, out in the Pacific Northwest. And when he first uh, <clears throat> published papers in the early 1920s, proposing there had been these gi a gigantic flood that had sculpted the landscape of the Pacific Northwest, he was pretty much dismissed as a crackpot. And the, the geological community at that point that had become established over like the previous two generations said, okay, we have to stamp out this heresy because he's trying to bring us right back again to, you know, biblical literalism and Noah's flood and things like that. This is getting dangerously close to, you know, supernatural stuff. Right. Because we haven't seen anything on the scale that he's invoking in modern times. Therefore, it didn't exist. And when they challenged him to provide, okay, you say there was these gigantic floods, right? Well, what was the, the cause? What was the source of these floods? He wasn't able to come up with anything. He said, well, it had to have been some accelerated melting of the great ice sheets that we, at this point now, ice ages have been well established, right? Primarily for, through the work of, of uh, Louis Agassiz. But by this time, Ice, sheets have be, uh, ice ages have become firmly established. So he said, well, it must have been some accelerated melting of the ice sheets. And the response was, well, what causes an accelerated melting? And he I didn't really have anything. So they said, well, <laughs> right. if you can't provide a cause for these floods, right. they didn't happen. That was that was the, basically the, the response. His response to that, well, I don't know what happened. But look, I've spent, you know, at this point, you know, up to like 20 years documenting discrete uh, types of evidence that all together, you know, like you could take one thing, for example, let's say a recessional cataract, which is a horseshoe shaped cataract in the bedrock, similar to uh, horseshoe falls at, at uh, Niagara Falls, right? Or you can look at a valley train extending off of a, off of a hill that, that is two miles long filled with boulders, huge boulders, right? Or you might look at, at potholes. I mentioned potholes earlier. Um, there's a whole suite of features that you could go through, maybe to, uh, you know, 20 to two dozen different types of features created in the landscapes by events that we'll call outsized events. And what Brett's did was said, okay, if you take any one of those, maybe a gradualistic scenario would be exp uh, sufficiently explanatory. But when you take the whole suite of features, you know, modern gradualistic processes cannot explain the features of, for example, the channel scablands. And when you look at each of these elements and you put it together, there's only one conclusion, yeah, that there were these gigantic floods and they can explain the full suite of, uh, of evidence, of diverse types of evidence. Right. Because when you have a flood, when you have a major water flow, there's, there's two processes. One is erosional and the other side of the uh, equation is deposition. If you have erosion and it's stripping away material, soil, bedrock, whatever, it's going to be transporting that and then it has to deposit it somewhere. Right. So you have erosional and you have depositional. 
And what Brett's did was he looked at the suite of erosion features and the suite of depositional features. He was able to show, well, look, here you have bedrock composed of this type of material, granite or, or, or basalt. You know, 20 miles away, 30 miles away, you've got this gravel bar and it's got the same type of rock in it. Well, that type of rock is not, you know, it's not um, found right there at that site. So it had to have been transported from elsewhere. Well, he worked through, you know, basically spent almost three decades doggedly documenting this evidence. And it was finally uh, accepted pretty much by mainstream by the late 50s. And, and it, a lot of it was, you know, the old saying is that a lot of the older geologists who had were heavily invested in the uniformitarian dogmas, they began to pass away and you had younger geologists coming up who were willing to take a fresh look at Brett's work and begin to say, yeah. And there, there's a famous story where James Galuli, who was one of Brett's harshest critics, actually, he at one point, he, he organized a conference in Washington, D.C. I don't remember the exact dates of it. But in this conference, he, he led Brett's to believe that, well, okay, there's a group of, you know, well-established geologists here who would like to take a look at your work and evaluate it. And Brett says, sure. He came there, realized after he got there that this was an ambush that they had set up um, for the sole purpose of discrediting. They thought, we're going to lay this heresy to rest and move on. So let's get Brett's there and we'll all gang up on him. It didn't work. Uh, and interestingly, there was one. Uh, there was another geologist, J.T. Pardee, who was in the group, who was listening thoughtfully to the whole presentation, and uh, listening to the supposed rebuttals of Brett's uh, mega flood hypothesis. And J.T. Pardee had been studying uh, Western Montana and had found this evidence what for what he called a gigantic lake in Western Montana. And in fact, the tour that we've got coming up. This is what we're going to be doing. We're going to be exploring the evidence in Western Montana. A lot of it, what J.T. Pardee was looking at way back, wrote his first paper published in 1910, which was the very first scientific paper he published in his career as a geologist. The last paper, I think, was published in 1943. That was the last paper he published in his career was also about that lake. So it's like his entire career is bookended with these two papers, mm. introducing Glacial Lake Missoula, which was the title of the first paper. And then, you know, 32, 33 years later, he publishes a second paper, and it was called uh, Unusual Currents in Glacial Lake Missoula. And, and that's a, kind of a hint right there, because, you know, you know yeah. scientists want to tend to, to um, you know, they try to go the opposite direction of making everything sound spectacular. They try to, to, to downplay but you yeah. have to kind of read between the lines when he say unusual currents. What's he talking about there? Right. And so one of the things that he had discovered between 1910 and this other uh, in this publication of his second paper was these gigantic current ripples that he realized could only be uh, explained by huge currents of water. So yeah. his, his unusual currents were these 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 uh, floods that had had created these gigantic ripple trains. And I can show you a, a yeah. photograph of these in a minute. Um, so then the other thing he looked at was there's a section called Eddy Narrows, which is a relatively straight section, maybe a 10 miles long, with a relatively 
continuous uh, channel profile. So, and a very easily measurable gradient. So in hydrology, there are formulas you use to try to determine peak discharges. And basically they're, 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 they're predicated upon the, the channel geometry, uh, the high water marks, the gradient, all of which contribute to, you know, the steeper the gradient, the faster the flow, right? That's going to just make intuitive sense because what you're looking for, peak discharge, you're looking at cubic feet per second, cubic meters per second, whatever. And then you put in a, a coefficient that uh, accounts for the amount of turbulence in the water, which is going to be a function of channel irregularities, a very smooth channel like an artificial conduit, will have very little turbulence introduced into, into the water flow. But if you start putting obstacles and obstructions and, and, and irregularities, then you it induces turbulence, and turbulence increases the amount of erosional power. It increases the amount of shear power, which can pluck and remove material. So he went to this place called Eddie Narrows, and he was able to calculate and he came up with, using a formula called the Chesi formula, he was able to come up with a peak discharge of around, I think it was around nine and a half cubic miles of water per hour flowing through this channel. Now, that is just an incredible amount of water, right? Well, so Pardee is sitting, he's attending this conference in Washington, D.C. He's listening to all of this. Now, at this point, the flooding in western Montana and the flooding in eastern that that has been studied now by J.T. Pardee, and the flooding in eastern Washington being studied by J. Holland Bretz have not been connected yet. But at the end of this conference, Pardee, who has been sitting there listening thoughtfully to the whole presentation and listening to these guys trying to rebut the mega flood hypothesis, it said he leans over to one of his colleagues and he whispers and he says. And, of course, Brett's has been attacked because, well, you can't explain where your water came from, right? So, therefore, that was the gist of their argument, right? At the end of the conference, Pardee leans over to one of his colleagues and he whispers and says, I know where Brett's flood came from. See, right there, that was the beginning of this paradigm shift. Because now, here's, here's what happened. Geologists up and coming now, they've been indoctrinated into the uniformitarian framework of thinking. Right. So what they're going to do is they're going to look for anything they can in terms of modern processes that can be extrapolated back to the ancient processes. Right. Oh, Pardee has talked about a proglacial lake that bursts through. And see, Pardee invoked the idea of an ice dam. He didn't know exactly where it was, but he proposed that it was somewhere to the west near the Clark Fork River. Studying the topography, you look at these mountain basins and you realize really there's only one outlet that would be a candidate outlet, and this is the Clark Fork River that that now flows into Lake Ponderay in northern Idaho. And I think you know where Lake Ponderay yep. is, right? Because you're yep. yeah. due north of me. Just north of you, yeah. So so here you had the idea come together because, for one thing, ah, oh, okay, we can we can use the uniformitarian framework of thinking now by just saying, um, yeah, this was a larger scale version of things that we've witnessed in modern times. Uh, yeah. You know, Icelanders uh, in Iceland they have the term Jökulalps, which is a glacial outburst flood. Now in Iceland, it's used, it's caused by 
subglacial volcanism, but you've had there have been many dozens and dozens of glacial outburst floods documented in the Canadian Rockies, in Alaska, in the Himalayas, in the Pyrenees, in the Alps, um, in Iceland, anywhere where there are mountain glaciers. And we have to understand that in the Holocene, which is the last 11,000 plus years, 11,600 years, what defines the Holocene is that we basically, it's a period of deglaciation. The ice sheets essentially disappeared. More than half of the ice that was mantling the planet 15,000 years ago was gone by 11,000 years ago, 10,000 years ago. And so this is what has come to differentiate the modern the Holocene from the previous Pleistocene, right? Well, the Holocene was pretty warm. In fact, we can I can show you reams of evidence to show you that that most of the Holocene has been warmer than now. This is a fact. And we can circle back to that maybe in another podcast. But hey, that's one of the, uh, I don't want to, I don't want right. to uh, drill into this now, but, you know, I, I can't help but think of, you know, for example, our current national security threats that uh, are outlined in national policy. And I, again, I won't get into it, but our service members right now in the Space Force who are thinking about things we're probably going to get into, like near-Earth objects and so, so forth, you know, read in policy memoranda that, uh, the biggest threats that we face in this country are global climate change and uh, white supremacy and COVID-19. I mean, literally, that's the those are the the big three, and uh, that doesn't really resonate with our service members. And uh, you know, setting the politics aside, uh, I, I think what it's what you're getting into is a, extremely important because uh, while it's not directly political in nature, all of these things have been politicized. And uh, it's unfortunate because just a little bit of understanding geology and some of the uh, Holocene history that you're talking about here can really help put some current political arguments into perspective, I think. Absolutely. And here's the thing to understand is that, that I was going with this, is that come around uh, between the 13th and 14th century AD, after a period of global warmth called the medieval warm period, the planet shifted gears uh, and it we went into a multi-phased little ice age, as it's been called. Um, the planet began to cool in the late 1200s. It accelerated in the 1300s. There was, um, there was a, a, a major cooling event, several cooling events that happened back to back between about 1310 and 1340, which led to a succession of agricultural failures, which led to famine. The famine led to... Uh, compromised immune systems, which led to the onset of the bubonic plague. And this wiped out, you know, a third of the population of Europe. It was a horrible thing that happened. And it was a consequence of global cooling. Was it more serious than COVID? <laughs> well, Just let's kidding. put it this way. Let's put it this way. There were so many corpses lying around that the living couldn't, there were not enough living people to bury yeah, the corpses. Horrific, horrific yeah. things. Yeah, yeah, it was horrific. That was truly a pandemic, right? Yeah. So here's my point is that I'm getting at is that during this little ice age, globally, glaciers grew to their largest extent that they have been in 10,000 years of the Holocene. Okay, we got to put that into perspective, which is not usually, um, you know, declared because people are being led to believe that so much of what's happening now is unprecedented. But you understand that, that the warming, the modern warming, 
which is the end of the Little Ice Age, goes back to the mid-19th century, early to mid-19th century. So the glaciers began to shrink. Now, these glaciers that have, have doubled and tripled in size since the early Holocene have, are now receding. They're melting back. So they're forming proglacial lakes. In other words, lakes in front of the glaciers. Now, if you have a trunk valley, let's say you got a trunk valley with tributaries coming in, and the tributaries are smaller than the trunk, right? Now, the warming starts, the tributary valleys will melt, and they will form lakes that are ponded against the primary valley glacier, right? Well, now the valley glacier is shrinking, as it's receding, it's contributing water to the ponding. So what's happening is the ratio of water mass to ice mass is shifting. And at some point, the water becomes capable of overcoming the obstacle of the ice. Because particularly during a melting phase like that, you have subglacial meltwater. You have glacial surges. Because once you get the subglacial meltwater, that lubricates the base of the glacier and you get glacier surges. When you get a glacier surge, what happens is you're now getting this extensional force applied to the to the ice mass. So this opens up uh, fissures and fractures within the ice. Um, that's a result of tensional forces that are accumulating in the ice because it's surging, right? Moving fast. So what happens then is that over the last 100, 150 years, there have been dozens and dozens of these outburst floods that have been documented. So circling back to the geologists who are now accepting the Brett's floods, they're going, okay, ah, we have a modern analog. We can see this. So what we're seeing here is just a bigger version of what we've witnessed within the last 100 years with outburst floods, glacially dammed outburst floods. Here's the problem, though, Matt, is that even the largest of the modern outburst floods weren't even a thousandth the magnitude or volume of these ancient floods. In fact, in fact, some of the, the ancient floods, their peak discharges were a thousand to ten thousand times greater than what we see with the modern examples. Now, that's been it's it's been acknowledged, but assumed that it was just a totally valid strategy to extrapolate upwards. See, and I maintain that, no, it's not. You can't just say, well, we've watched modern outburst floods that, um, you know, might might have half a cubic kilometer of water, right? But we're looking at, at one of the Brett's floods, and we're looking at, you know, double, I mean, we're looking at a thousand times to 2,000 times more water than the biggest outburst floods we've seen today. Well, so that does lead to the question, and don't let me cut you off if if you want to share more there, but uh, what is the cause then? I mean, to answer, it's the question that Brett's faced early on that he said, hey, I don't know the answer to this question. All I can do is look at the data and and give you my conclusion. So what is it, and, and, and does this get into the Earth-Cosmos uh, interplay and uh, impactors? And then I want to mention this here just in case I forget to bring it up later. We don't have to go down this path now, but... One of the things I said that you, I've heard you present on is uh, a kind of cosmic clock of the great year. And do you believe that there's a periodicity to uh, both impactors or some of these cosmic events and how they impact the Earth? And is there, or, or are there repeating cycles uh, that are maybe even predictable that we should be aware of as humanity? I mean, what, what do you have to say about that? And 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 this this then ties into some of what I was hoping you'd talk about with space forces. 
as we need to turn our intentions heavenward uh, in a number of respects, but especially as a, as a quote-unquote space force, uh, instead of re- retaining some what we might call air-mindedness, how do you become space-minded, uh, and which I think is perhaps wholly different than um, you know, what we're used to in the military well, you, you bring up two points there. One, you know, the cyclicity of, of events and the other being um, whether or not, you know, the, the idea that we're beginning to recognize the critical role of these catastrophic events in Earth history. And, you know, my, I'll, I'll jump back. So in 1970, I spent four months just you could do these back in those days, hiking, hitchhiking, traveling with friends over the Western states, which included Utah, Colorado, Washington State, Oregon, Idaho, Montana. And after four months of being immersed in these landscapes, it really helped to solidify this belief that there were these forces at work and that I wanted to try to learn more about these forces. So, you know, throughout the 70s, I was again reading a whole lot of stuff, particularly fascinated from the time I was a kid in mythology and legends and so on. So I regularly read into beliefs from, you know, from the Hindu tradition, from, you know, from Native American traditions, from the Mayans and the Greeks and the, 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 uh, the Norse mythologies. And over and over and over again, you come across these themes of these tremendously destructive and catastrophic events, going back and rereading the Bible, you know, and um, and realizing how there's almost the, the, the whole biblical narrative is bookended. By, on the front end, you've got the, the flood of Noah, which destroys the earth. And then at the end, you've got prophecies about the earth being destroyed by fire. Well, those have parallels in other traditions, you know, so... Once I started immersing myself into these other traditions, I, it became apparent to me that vastly accelerated and vastly more powerful events were part of the psychological makeup of our ancestors thousands of years ago. They had this very catastrophic model of earth change, right? So several things are happening simultaneous. Now, this is like in the 70s. I met this guy who was writing a book which is actually kind of a silly book now, and I can say that he's, he's gone on to other things. But he was invoking catastrophe, and he introduced me uh, to a writer named Charles Hapgood, who has been dismissed um, by, you know, the defenders, the self-appointed defenders of dogma as being a crackpot. He wasn't a crackpot. But what he did, very much like Emanuel Velikovsky before him in the 1950s, was he cataloged at that point, the, the very copious amount of information that suggested there were these, I, I call them non-linear events. You know, uniformitarians gradually think of as linear change, but then there are pulses of very concentrated change, right? So like Velikovsky before him, Hapgood cataloged all of the evidence, and it, it came from geology, paleontology, archaeology, mythology, all which seemed to converge on the idea that these catastrophes had happened in Earth history. Like Velikovsky before him, what he attempted to do then is he's cataloged all this evidence. Now the next problem is to try to explain 
what is the historicity behind this evidence? How, you know, what is, what actually happened? So Velikovsky, he went off into astrophysics, which was outside of his field, and he got savage for his attempts to explain the catastrophic episodes in Earth history um, based upon his model of astrophysical change. And what they did was essentially threw the baby out with the bathwater kind of thing. Um, well, you can't come up with an explanation for all these catastrophes. Therefore, they didn't happen. But his book, Earth and Upheaval, unlike a couple of his other books, which have been pretty much discredited, that has stood the test of time because a lot of the stuff he documents in there is very solid evidence for catastrophic events in Earth history. Now, Charles Hapgood did a very similar thing. I thought that was Charles Hapgood's book. So it's, oh, Earth and Upheaval? Earth and Upheaval is Velikovsky. Okay. Uh, Path yeah. of the Pole is, is, uh, yeah. is Hapgood. Hapgood. Yeah. So he wrote this book in the 50s, uh, and then he updated it in the 70s, and he called it Path of the Pole. And in there he has, God, I don't remember, three or 400 references. Um, now, I had been talking to this acquaintance of mine who was writing this book, um, which where, where the book went completely south was he predicted that on May 5th of the year 2000, there was going to be a great catastrophe and the, the world was going to end and all of that. And then, of course, May 5th came and went and nothing special happened. And I, I didn't ever see him too much after that, but he was, um, I heard, you know, people were saying, well, ironically, uh, his name was Richard. Richard, um, you know, he went through a period of depression because the earth didn't end. Um, mm -hmm. When he thought, was, <laughs> oh, well, I don't know. I would, feel, I would feel somewhat relieved personally. But right. anyways, it was through him. He turned me <laughs> on to the work of, of Charles Hapgood. So shortly thereafter, I, I'm going at this library sale, and they've got all these books for 50 cents or a buck or something out on the table. And sure enough, there's Hapgood's book for a buck or whatever, up, oh, plunk down the buck, get the book, read the book, and then went into his bibliography, which was, like I said, three or 400 references. So I thought, you know what? I'm going to try to just get every reference out of out of his bibliography. And I did get most of them and, and read mm -hmm. through them. And so that was 78, 79, 80, right in there. So okay. then 1980, you may recall, that was the year that the work of um, Lewis of Walter Alvarez and his team was published. Now, I mentioned earlier when I was one of those boys growing up in the 50s and early 60s that um, was obsessed with dinosaurs, just completely obsessed with dinosaurs. And so I read books on dinosaurs. I built models of dinosaurs. I watched any movie that they came out with, with no matter how cheesy, with dinosaurs in it. And um, I kept my obsession with dinosaurs right up until I traded di uh, dinosaurs for girls. And then at that point, I kind of forgot about dinosaurs for a little while. But um, the thing was, that when I was a kid, I had this this uh, view master, you called it. It was a little, I don't know, a lot of boys, kids. I know what you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, yeah. So one of those, re one of the three, three real sets that I had was about dinosaurs. And it was from this 1950s, uh, I think it was called Animal World or something. And they had a section in there of animatronic dinosaurs uh, that were produced by Ray Harrahausen, who was like the dean of the stop motion. So I had that. And, and at the end of it, it talked about the catastrophic extinction of the dinosaurs. So, so it was like completely sort of out of 
that the uniformitarian context, and it kind of laid out this mystery of what happened to the dinosaurs and talked about the sky catching fire and all of this kind of stuff. So I had this imagery in my head, which I, interestingly, you go back and I've, I've still got the, the same old reels. I've looked at them and I've read the little book that goes with it. I'm going, you know, this was very prescient. This was like ahead of its time. But anyways, it planted this idea in my mind. One of the many things, the threads that came together that sort of, you know, led me to this interest in catastrophism. But so now 1980 comes along. I've been looking at, you know, Hapgood's theory, which was an accelerated plate tectonics, a type of a pole shift, as the cause of the of the um, catastrophe. And I've also now by this time read a few uh, critiques of that idea and started having very serious doubts about it. Now, 1980 comes along, you have publication, uh, three independent teams that had all concluded that the dinosaur extinction was caused by the impact of something from space. The most famous and well-known of those is that um, uh, that, that uh, the, the Alvarez team came up with because they found the, the iridium layer in Italy at the Cretaceous tertiary boundary. And they saw that this iridium enhancement was roughly 100 times, I think, about more than the background amount of iridium, either in the, 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 the strata above or the strata below, which led them to believe, because they knew that iridium was rare in the surface of the Earth, but abundant in meteorites and asteroids. So when they found this spike of iridium right at the, the KT boundary, where the dinosaurs went extinct, there was just this very large spike of iridium, they theorized, well, could it have been that there was an asteroid impact? And then they put it out to their colleagues. And I think there was a group in Denmark and a group in New Zealand that went back and took a closer look at the KT boundary, at this this layer that separated the, the Mesozoic from the uh, Cenozoic, which was the massive shift in the, in the balance of biological terrestrial nature, right? So they took a look at this layer and they discovered that everywhere they looked, you had this spike of iridium. And so within the next year, couple of years, dozens of sites around the planet were re-examined. And in each case, this iridium spike showed up. Same spike. So yeah. it looked like the entire planet got dusted with iridium. So this is what... Is, is there any other cause, potential cause of that dusting of iridium, or is it? Well, you can have I mean, iridium you... uh, outgassed in volcanic eruptions, but not on the mm -hmm. scale that we're looking at. Here. Right. And and so again, this is the same kind of a thing where you have these various strands of evidence come together. Because then what happened was, once they started taking a closer look, they they found out that not only was there iridium, but there were um, shocked quartz associated. Shocked quartz is when you have a huge impact into silicate-based rocks, the pressure wave moves through and it leaves a very distinct signature. It's only seen microscopically, but it's a very distinct signature, um, and it creates these parallel deformation features, they're called PDFs, which, which show up. I could show you, and I could pull up, and we could actually look at pictures of shocked quartz, but that's a diagnostic for, for a high hypervelocity impact. Then... Um, you had meltwater uh, evidence found, uh, not meltwater, um, but uh, pooling. Like, let, let me back up a little bit. The critics who attacked this said you cannot 
you cannot accept this idea unless we have a smoking gun. And the smoking gun would be a crater, right? So the hunt began in the 80s for a crater. They looked at multiple, um, you know, at one point, the Manson Crater in Iowa was in, being invoked. But once they learned more about the Manson Crater in Iowa, it was too small and it was too early to have been a KT boundary uh, candidate crater. But then they began to notice in Louisiana and Texas some deposits that looked like giant tsunami deposits. Then they began to see evidence in Cuba, like huge boulder deposits that looked like they had been washed inland from a very large tsunami wave. There was multiple lines of evidence like that that, that came together and ultimately led them to uh, the Yucatan Peninsula and there was a candidate crater buried under roughly a half a mile of limestone sedimentary rock, about 120 to 140 miles in diameter, and uh, it dated precisely to the KT boundary. So at that point, most scientists were willing to accept that there had been a big impact. There was still controversy about whether it was impact or volcanism that caused the extinction of the dinosaurs because could have been both could have been both i think it was both <laughs> right because at the same time as that impact you had the deccan yeah. traps in india being um you know these right. gigantic basalt floods that were ejecting huge amounts of sulfur and things into the atmosphere mm -hmm. which would have contributed to acidifying the atmosphere i think that the two were working in tandem i think volcanism or endogenic within the earth and exogenic from without the earth. At this point, my, my thinking leads me to believe that the primary driver is outside and that we can see that there are periods of enhanced volcanism, enhanced seismicity, enhanced uh, climate change and so on. But ultimately the trigger is external. That's, that's what I believe now. Um, but so then this was a major shift point where at that point I became very interested uh, in the whole impact phenomena with that. And that's when I started paying attention to that phenomena. I think this uh, would be a great segue point uh, for the listener between episodes. And so uh, what I'm going to do here, uh, and maybe we can take a break, is uh, say that with that segue, um, we'll wrap up this episode of the show. Uh, and when we come back for the follow-on part two of uh, this series, uh, I'd like to continue to explore uh, now moving heavenward, uh, you know, the threat that we face, uh, the potential threat that we face from impactors and kind of put that into context. I'll tell you, there's a lot of Space Force personnel that are going to be listening to the show over the weeks ahead. And I think that'll be something really important to get into. And we will promote it throughout the Space Force community uh, if my first several episodes didn't get their attention, these will as well. <laughs> but I have a feeling they're already listening. So, um, yeah, let's let's uh, uh, wrap up this episode. Uh, thanks for joining us today. And uh, I guess later today, we're going to be doing part episode two or another day of the week. So thanks for uh, talking us through uh, that. Yeah, well, thanks. Thanks for having me, Matt. And, and, you know, I love to talk about this. I feel like it's very important to share this information. And there's a lot more to cover, a lot more to cover. Um, but I will sum by, up my 30-second summary is this, that we have, the scientific community has come to accept the role of catastrophic events in Earth history. Since 1980, between now, this has now become an accepted paradigm for understanding Earth history. 
where we're at now, and the thing that I am trying to promote is this realization that we have to look at these nonlinear catastrophic events if we want to understand human history. And I think that's where we can pick it up because just like there have been mass extinctions in the biological realm due to these catastrophic events, these immensely violent and destructive events, I think we see the parallel when we look at human culture and human civilization that I think we can actually invoke this uh, model that there have been civilizations on this planet that have gone extinct because of the very same types of natural processes.